listeners. Welcome to my dining room. <laughs> I get to sit here and talk to people and bring you these conversations that are talk with me. And today is one of those perfect examples of where I say I live, which is the intersection of art and mental health. Um, and so I will explain how this connection happened and also mention that it is December and it is going to be 70 degrees in Lawrence, Kansas. And if anybody doesn't believe there's global warming, I'm thinking they're not using much of their brain, but that's obvious at times. So I'll just stop there. Okay. <laughs> so today, here's the story of how this, this guest and I got together. This is pretty surprising, unlike any other guest. As you may know, I am a social worker and I do a lot of my work with suicide prevention, three main areas, suicide prevention, suicide bereavement, and working with trans and gender nonconforming youth. And so in the different sources of information that I'm looking at, each day I get an email from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that has some notable news and some of it's listed as national and some of it's listed as local and some of it's specific to activities under the umbrella of that organization, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which has great things, research and great information and help getting support for survivors of suicide loss. It's a wonderful organization. But at any rate, so I see this article that intrigues me and I go to this article and it's about this visual art exhibit that relates to suicide prevention. And so I do what a lot of us do these days. So I go from the article to my search and I'm Googling and finding this person. And before I know it, you know, I find a way to make contact and I say, oh, I would love to talk to you. And not only do I get to talk to this person, but I found out this person is actually going to be in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a big deal since her home base is in Kentucky. <laughs> and so I want to welcome Julie Strack. Julie, welcome to the dining room table. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to your dining room table. I'm really glad to do this. I'm so excited to learn about your project and see some of your art and just, you know, and then as I'm snooping around, I realize it's very personal for you in terms of suicide prevention and bereavement. And, mm -hmm. and so I thought, man, this is so cool. We have to talk and now we get to. Yes. yes. Cool. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So tell us all a little bit, just kind of background stuff about you, a little bit about who you are. Wow. Whenever anybody asks me that question, I worry about taking up way too much time <laughs> because I've, I've had quite a life. Um, I um, grew up in the Chicago area and in a big family uh, without a lot of resources and really no support for education, let alone art, even though my mother was and still is an artist of a sort. It, it, was, it was a very complicated situation. You know, long, long story short is that I really wanted to go to college and be an artist and I wanted to go to college and be an art teacher. And the only way for me to do that was to wait until I was an adult. And I had three children and I was a single mom. Wow. And so I spent 12 years in college working my way through the degrees necessary to be um, a professor of art at the college level. That was my big dream. That's what I wanted. And um, so I was well into my 30s when I finally got that degree. And then I had um, this series of tenure track teaching jobs that never panned out to tenure. And I kept thinking, you know, what is going on here? This is uh -huh. something I really love to do. Uh -huh. um, but it's not making me happy. How can you love something so much and have it not make you happy? What the heck's going on? And I don't quit on things easy. So it took a while for me to figure out that higher education had really changed from the time I started school until the time I stopped being a traditional teacher of art. All in all, I spent almost 20 years as a professor. Um, and what I realized is that I had a, an approach to learning that not a lot of people have anymore. And that, that's the fundamental way that I believe higher education has changed. Um, I have a love of learning. I just want to learn things. You know, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I did not do anything for the grades. I did it for learning. And that is simply not the case anymore. Um, I watched higher education change over time, become, you know, run like, like a business. And it became about, um, it became about keeping students in seats and numbers up. And it wasn't anymore. 
about what I believe art is all about. And what I believe art is all about is risk-taking. I think it teaches courage. I've always known that because it did it for me. And I think it's one of those um, really important things. I think these days there's a lot of talk about resiliency, teaching resiliency. And I believe, and I know, that art can do that. Yes. Because it's amazing how scared people are of art. They're terrified. Yeah. You know, you sit people down and say, uh, you know, give a pencil and they start doodling and they go, well, I can't do this. I can't draw. And I'm like, but you are, you're drawing right now. So I, I wasn't able to teach from that perspective. You know, this perspective of we're going to be challenging ourselves all the time. And, you know, the idea that art suddenly became something that you made a rubric out of, I really couldn't handle. Um, to me, it was so much about not just the effort that students made, and most of them didn't, but also um, the risks they took while making those efforts. And how do you quantify that? Uh -huh. I, I watched higher ed, like everything else, turn into a lot of bean counting. And I remember getting into arguments with administrators, which is why I didn't get tenure, um, <laughs> about, about how, you know, there's some things that you cannot quantify. You just can't do that. And that's what I love about art is uh -huh. that you can't do that. So anyway, as you can see, I could go on and on about this. I am... Um, was pretty much at a point where I had to get out of higher education. It, it was an imperative. It was a mental health issue. Um, one person can't fight a whole system. Yeah. And I always believed that I could change things from the inside. And I realized that I was only going to be able to do it from the outside if I could do it at all. And I took some time off in um, 2010 and 2011 um, to really think through what teaching meant to me. And if I wanted to keep teaching, what kind of teacher I could be instead of the one that made me so unhappy. And what I ended up doing, um, really out of anger and frustration more than anything else, was I began volunteering at every social service agency in the area where I lived at the time, which was Southwest Indiana. And this meant um, um, shelters for victims of domestic violence, it meant homeless shelters, it meant housing projects for formerly homeless families, um, it meant elderly folks. Um, and so I just did that. And the funny thing was, is that's really when I, I settled on this idea that art was about teaching people to be resilient and to take risks and to um, build hope. You know, this idea that I, I think that it's hard for folks to understand what a powerful thing it is to create something from scratch and maybe even from nothing. And that doesn't matter what walk in life you're from or how much money you have or even how much talent you've got, the idea that you make something from scratch and it's something that you create, that you are the creator, that really grounds people and it gives them hope. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a strange thing to watch, but I watched it happen. Um, there was a lot of, the, my main work ended up um, at a homeless shelter in Evansville, Indiana. And uh, the executive director there and I used to talk a lot about how you help people who are the we used to call them the chronics, you know, the people who are chronically homeless, the folks that never really get back on their feet again. You know, what do you, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, helping people like that. And also the concept of help um, that often there's lots of people out there who want to help, but a lot of times it's coming from a desire for them to feel good about themselves helping versus really finding out what people need to be helped. And there were lots of those conversations and, what I ended up able to do for a short time at that shelter was to um, develop an economic empowerment project that was art-based. And it, I got some donations of stained glass and some old single-pane windows. And then I realized that homeless folks were really interested in doing stuff like this. It wasn't um, as challenging as like sitting down and drawing and that we might actually be able to use it to fundraise. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. Um, but thanks at the new executive director that they were replaced at one point, you know, I never really saw eye to eye on that whole idea of economic empowerment. Um, a big stumbling block was um, the fact that they were a nonprofit. I had to keep reminding him that I'm a volunteer, that I'm just using the space and that it's not going to affect shelter. And then there was a question of, well, what are they going to do with the money that they raise? And I'm like, why should that matter what the homeless do with the money that they raise? Mm -hmm. They could be working at McDonald's making money, mm -hmm. you know, and it's none of our business what they do, you know, mm -hmm. making that. Um, and so it was a very, it was amazing. It was about three years of 
just astonishing transformation for myself as a teacher, as well as um, a lot of um, introspection about about what it meant to help people. And then it all kind of abruptly ended with the new executive director, a few personal things that occurred at the same time. And I suddenly had to leave Southern Indiana. I just had to go and start over again. Mm -hmm. Um, I really always felt stifled in Southwestern Indiana. Sorry, Southwestern Indiana, but that's how it felt. Mm -hmm. Um, Not a lot of like-minded people. Um, and so I looked for a place that I could live and start over again where there were like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And I knew Berea, Kentucky because of my time teaching at Moorhead State University, which was one of my favorite, really my favorite job. Um, they get a lot of first-generation college students who don't know the first thing about living outside their area. That's changed a bit with, you know, the internet, but internet is never good in Eastern Kentucky. So there's a lot. Do you mean techno- technology yeah, te- isn't good? Okay. Yeah, it's not, not that, not that people don't like internet. Right. But yeah. yeah. They okay. just, it's, it's hard to get it. Okay. Um, and I liked working with that population, but Berea was kind of in between a family member and Moorhead. And so I would go back and forth and I, but I honestly didn't, um, really delve into what Berea was all about until I went there for a job interview for AmeriCorps VISTA. That was my last oh. actual paid employment was as a VISTA leader with uh, an, uh, an educational arm of Berea College. And when I went for that interview, I stayed at the historic hotel there and actually sat and read the book on the history of Berea. And it gave me chills because I thought, oh my goodness, this is a hotbed for not only liberals, but people who just don't fit in any place else. These are like-minded people. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, why didn't I think about this sooner, you know? Um, So that's how I got to Berea. Um, You know, the the connection to suicide um, awareness and prevention is unfortunately someone um, I loved who I was hoping to help by bringing him out to Berea and giving him a fresh start too. But he took his life in uh, August 2016, about, you know, about a third of the way into my um, uh, year, my service year with AmeriCorps VISTA. And um, it rocked my world. Um, Of course it did. And it still is. And I don't think anything's ever going to be the same. Um, It also taught me a big lesson lesson about helping people and what that means. Um, But it also... um, kind of was a next step for me, really, because I'm starting to think now, because of my connection to Eastern Kentucky University and their suicide, the Psychology Department Suicide Prevention Initiative, um, started thinking about how I can use art to help people who have lost a loved one to suicide, who have um, attempted suicide and are living with that. Um, And we actually had an event um, in September called Artvention that I helped create and facilitate. And it was amazing. I mean, I just, it was just amazing. And, um, and so I am hoping to do a lot more of that kind of work. So it's just, it's kind of another facet um, of the work that I was already involved in after leaving traditional teaching. And I hope to, you know, kind of continue that. So there I am. I mean, I do, I do have th- three children, and I do have six grandchildren, uh-huh. <laughs> and I kind of live all over. My daughter here in in Uncle Lawrence, which brings me to Lawrence right yeah. now. But um, I'm very committed. I'm very. It's an understatement. Committed to the idea of using art to empower people and heal people. And I don't want to be an art therapist. I never wanted to be an art therapist and I don't want to be a social worker. Uh-huh. Um, I, I really feel like I use art in a very different way than, um, than art therapists do as well. So there, there are like several things that I wrote down when you were talking, I was just looking, I know in Kansas, there's Kansas university and mm-hmm. there's Kansas state university and there are other universities. Mm-hmm. So university of Kentucky is different from East. Okay. Because a friend and colleague, Julie Serrell, is at University of Kentucky mm-hmm. doing wonderful things in suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. And she's um, the, the chair of the American Association of Suicidology right now. So I thought, well, is Julie one of the people you've connected with yet? I have not connected with okay. her yet. I've been working with uh, Dr. Melinda Moore. Oh, and, I love Melinda. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that because I yeah. saw that. Yeah. It was um, yes. Melinda yeah. happened purely by accident. Um, 
you know, after you have a loss like that, you, you connect with people and try yeah. to get the help that you need. And a pastor at the wonderful, marvelous, amazing Union Church in Berea um, gave me some phone numbers, and those phone numbers led me to Melinda. And uh, so I'm part of her um, bereavement group. Awesome. Which, I, I mean, I have to say that group has, has saved my life as well. Yeah. I never thought I would be a, a big supporter of group therapy, but I think when it comes to suicide, survival and bereavement you need to be around people who have had that yeah. happen to them as yeah. well yeah because it's a whole different kind of grief yeah it's it just is. different it's very different yeah how cool and again i melinda and i go way back to cool. when she was a staff person at the national hopeline network that's how oh. we first crossed. so way before grad school and all that so mm -hmm. it's really cool and in fact we we had a great opportunity to connect at a recent conference and it was wonderful to, to see her and that kind of stuff anyway mm -hmm. so so that was one of my things mm -hmm. another of my things is when i hear people talk about suicide loss mm -hmm. one of my invitations always is tell us that person's name tell us some stories about that person in life oh wow well his name um was owen carl cheney and i met him at the homeless shelter um he was one of a handful of probably the biggest group of talented people I've ever run across in my life. A lot of them come through homeless shelters, which is telling when it comes to artistic talent. You know, mm -hmm. um, when I met him, he, it was his first round at the homeless shelter and he was um, struggling to get back on his feet, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, get a job again, you know, find a place to live again and all that stuff. And um, he and I made a major connection and I can't explain it um, mm -hmm. because he, he was um, quite a bit younger than me. He, he died at 35. And um, I just know that right away we had a ton in common and that surprised him as well because he figured, Oh, former college professor, you know, what do I have in common with her? But I had a very difficult childhood and, and it kind of, um, Merch with his. Mm -hmm. So I found out how talented he was, and he became a major um, um, participant in what I called Art in the Annex, and he helped me a lot with the fundraisers that we um, we ended up getting, getting involved with and trying to raise money for the shelter. And we just got really close. Um, eventually, however, I found out, um, and it's really tough to figure this out when you love somebody. You know, I think when you are a therapist or a social worker or a teacher or something like that, um, it's a little, your vision is a little bit clearer when it comes to there's something going on with this person that goes far beyond addictions. It's, it's, it's a mental illness. And I honestly did not really see that clearly for some time. And I still thought at um, a few months before he took his life that I could help him if I could just get him out of a bad situation where he was. And so I moved into Berea, was trying to help him get work, um, and he just couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And so he took his life on August 22nd, 2016. Um, he was an incredible musician, an incredible artist, um, beautiful in and out. You know, when he wasn't struggling with, with schizophrenia, he was probably the kindest person I ever met. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's nothing like watching acts of kindness happen in a homeless shelter, uh -huh. okay, when there's a lot of people who need kindness. Yeah. So to watch people who are already hurting and trying to recover from things actually help other people yes. who are recovering from things is just magical. Yes. So I will never forget him. He's in the direction my life is going and is all because of him. So Aww. I owe him a lot and I love him. Listen, so. Owen Carl, Carl Cheney. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And wonderful that you were in his life, you know? Yeah, it's hard to, you know, one of the hardest things when you love someone who does take their life is, of course, struggling with guilt and blame. Uh -huh. You know, wondering what did I do? What did I not do? Yeah. The endless ifs. And I say, yeah, because as you know from group, that is one of the most common reactions yeah. when we lose somebody to suicide. Right. And then you forget that there were things that, you did for them. Yes. You know, and it, since his passing, of course, I found things because he was living with me mm. that indicated that I gave him a lot more than I ever realized. Right. And he gave me a yeah. lot more yeah. than that. Yeah. You know, too. And one of the things that, that I think we always need to consider is, <clears throat> although his life was short, mm. it might have been longer than it would have been without you 
Right. And like, people have told me that, and that has been a lifesaver for yeah, me as well. So yeah. thank you for saying that. Yeah. There's a, each year, I don't know whether you guys did this or your group or whatever, the, this thing called International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Mm -hmm. Each year, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, um, AFSP, the group I referenced earlier, um, encourages gatherings. Um, and I don't remember which year, but in, in one of the years, the, the national presentation, there's always a, a, a national webinar. Well, let's say a film, a short documentary that is people who are survivors of suicide loss. Mm -hmm. And one year, one of the things that was said by one of those survivors on the documentary has always stuck with me. And it was, remember what you did right. Yeah. Because there's mm -hmm. so much of our critiquing ourselves. It seems to be the way our human brains tend mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. When we think about things we did right, it's a powerful mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that we that you could share some things about this wonderful person, and mm -hmm. it's very sad that he died of suicide. Mm -hmm. And it's also very wonderful that you're both in each other's lives. Yeah. As long as you were. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. And then I have to drop this tidbit in case you ever have an interest in going back to higher ed. There is this college in Washington called the Evergreen State. College. I've heard of it. In fact, I think I applied for a job there years ago. Apply again, man. That's where <laughs> my younger son went to school there. So we got to know Evergreen. And it's mm -hmm. this amazing learning environment that is a school that teaches love of learning. Mm -hmm. And it's not the traditional. And in fact, as you know, they don't issue grades. They do narrative evaluations. Oh, nice. And yeah. And so, so like right now, our son is in the process of applying for um, some doc programs in sociology. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have like a transcript of GPAs. He has this gigantic portfolio wow. of narrative evaluations. That is and so cool. It is very cool. Wow, it's, like it's, it's this wonderful multidisciplinary learning environment. Mm -hmm. That is not for every student, but for the ones who who do go there and love it. Mm -hmm. Man, they they are wonderful learners, and so they have such a great experience. So, and that's part of a state university system, folks. That was started intentionally. Just a little plug for the Evergreen State College <laughs> in Olympia, Washington. <laughs> You know, I think I probably applied there because I had heard that about them. And this would have been when I was first out of graduate school. Uh -huh. um, but I don't, I don't know. I have no idea if I'm going to get back into traditional uh -huh. teaching. We'll see. My time with AmeriCorps, let me, let me, if I may do a plug for AmeriCorps. Uh -huh. um, I didn't know anything about AmeriCorps until I was um, looking for at least moderate, not even moderately, poverty level. No kidding. Employment. <laughs> when I was still in Southwestern Indiana uh -huh. and I found out Kentucky has some, has a lot of amazing programs through AmeriCorps and I got connected um, through what's called senior Corps, And that got me into this, both the schools and the um, um, assisted living and independent living for elderly in Henderson, Kentucky. And then I went from that position to the Vista leader position. And Vista is, is simply another facet of AmeriCorps, but I'm devoted to the idea of service work now. Um, it's, it's just so satisfying to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I really enjoyed being a VISTA leader because I got to help supervise a whole group of VISTA, VISTAs that were kind of scattered in some of the poorest areas in Eastern Kentucky and mm -hmm. involved in all different kinds of capacity building projects. And I learned so much about the area. Um, so we were very happy and still are that AmeriCorps is still being funded and that, um, that this good work is going on because some of these communities in Eastern Kentucky, I don't know what they do without AmeriCorps. Mm -hmm. I just don't know. And the schools especially, I don't know what mm -hmm. they would do. So um, I'm hoping to get back into AmeriCorps, but maybe from a more supervisory end. And that might get me back into a university. We'll see. I uh -huh. don't know. We'll uh -huh. see what happens. Yeah. yeah so definitely a passion for helping. I do. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Being of service. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being of use, you know, yeah. in some kind of appropriately helpful way. Yeah. 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 Meaning, meaningful work. I've always been a big fan of meaningful work. I used to get in arguments with board members at the homeless shelter about that. You know, these people need jobs. We're just going to, you know, get them into a job, whatever job, you know, chicken parts at the Tyson factory or, you know, very poorly paid construction work. Um, 
And I would argue that, you know, couldn't we make an effort to find more meaningful work? Don't you think they'd stick with the job longer? Mm -hmm. Don't you think they feel better with the job? And um, there's a lot of dissension about that in terms of helping homeless people. They should take whatever jobs they can get. Exactly. You know, well, do you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and the homeless are just like everybody else. And so that means... People who are experiencing homelessness are people who've had bad times in life. Mm -hmm. You know, as many people will say, you know, you know that it it could be any of us (laughs) in this kind of world that Mm -hmm. major changes, health changes that Mm -hmm. that wipe people out, take away their work. I mean, Mm -hmm. lots of us are on a very tenuous, Mm -hmm. you know, grasp when it comes to our financial situation. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. We should not be prejudiced about right. people who have that experience. Or presume to know what they need and want yeah. without asking them. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of meaningful employment, since yeah. you are here in Lawrence, Kansas, I just also have to say, I don't know whether you've ever experienced the youth program in Lawrence called Van Gogh, which is an art-based employment mm-hmm. program. That's cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I could get you a chance to stop over there while you're in town. But mm-hmm. so, cause it, it's another one of those things that, so in, in Lawrence, Kansas, this wonderful woman named Lennon Green started this program where teaching employment and life skills through teaching art, mm-hmm. where the youth who participate, get paid mm-hmm. for their time. It's mm-hmm. not It's not like a program that you go to, you apply and they can only accept a certain number of mm-hmm. students each time, of, of, of uh, apprentice artists is mm-hmm. uh, what they are. And they get paid an hourly wage for their participation in the program. And they also have specific um, art that they create that gets sold at different times. Cool. So it is art based. It is learning. It is learning about being part of a group because they go through the program with a group of other youth. Mm-hmm. They have artists. They have artists who are social workers. They have guest artists. You know, they they have conversations about you know kind of healthy living choices. You know, nutrition and all kinds of things. So they're working on this stuff all together. Cool. And it's this wonderful program that's nice. been going on for a long time. Thanks to one woman, like mm-hmm. you are one woman, you can start <laughs> things, you know, Lynn started this and it's, and it's amazing. The impact is very cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to know a little bit about you in terms of art. Okay. Because obviously that's one of the, the ways that you connect people. Right. And I'd like to know about your art and I'd also like to know, of course, about art mention. Yeah. I, um, my art has always been about my family. And there, there always comes a time when you're in art school, when you get, you're in the scary class where it's no longer about, we're going to learn this technique. Uh, we're going to learn to use this media. And you, you get to a point sometime during your sophomore or junior year where you've got a professor who says, okay, you're going to create a body work and, and you need to pick a theme. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that my painting teacher said that to me and because it terrified me. Um, I was told in high school that I could not write, which is hilarious because I have essays published now about my family (laughs) and I I got A's in all my writing classes in college. But, you know, that was one of those moments that almost destroyed me having (coughs) me I can't write. So my idea of theme was always, you know, writing. And so as soon as this professor says, you need to come up with a theme for your work, I was paralyzed. I'm like, theme, oh my God. And then I stopped and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You've taken enough art history and you're old enough because I went to college late to understand the theme just means something that ties everything together. Uh So I asked myself, what is it that I see every day that uh, moves me, you know, to the point where I think about it enough that it might be something to explore. And I lived in um, extreme Northern Illinois at the time in an area that's now really developed, but it used to be a lot of farmland a lot of the farms were being sold and they had these huge old barns that were decrepit and they had uh, an impact on me visually. And I didn't know why. And I started thinking about it and I'd been in therapy for a bit and I was finally beginning to understand some things about what happened to me when I was a kid. And I realized that the barns reminded me of my father. And I was also reading Faulkner at the time in a lit class. And as I lay dying, and where Vardaman says, um, my mother is a fish, my mother is a fish, there's that whole scene. And I thought, oh, this is, those barns are like my father. My father is a barn, you know, mysterious and scary and kind of dark. And that became my first um, 
thematically related series of works and they were kind of abstract barns sort of um, zoomed in very claustrophobic like no sky and really powerful and mm-hmm. scary mm-hmm. and I did a series of old houses that were called my mother is a house and then I started thinking you know yeah this is really cool I think at, at this point I, I transferred to the university and I'm very I taught myself a long time ago to take creative risks and I know when it's time to move on. And I've been doing these barns and doing these houses and I realized and I knew that they were just abstract representations of my parents and I needed to do something that was more personal. And that was scary because it meant telling my story and mm-hmm. making it clearer to the viewer mm-hmm. than just a, an abstract barn. Um, and right about that time, it, I was struggling a lot being a single mom, going to school, I almost quit at the university. I did. Right at the moment I was about to quit, um, we had a flood in the basement of where I was living. And I I was able to salvage some things. And they were in this part of the living room where I slept. I actually had no bedroom for three years. I slept on a mattress. And looking at these boxes thinking, I'm about to quit. I'm just going to quit. And then I thought... I know it's in those boxes, you know, uh, it's a bunch of old schoolwork. When I got married at 19, my mom did a purge of the house of me. And when I got back from my honeymoon, my father showed up and they dumped boxes and it was really something. And I thought, I haven't looked in those boxes. Really. They keep following me around. I've never gotten rid of them, but so why do I have them? Why am I thinking about this now? I need to get up and open them. So mm-hmm. I opened them up and it's all old schoolwork a lot of it from a time period of my childhood that, that I have, I call it my big blank. I don't remember things. Mm-hmm. And I realized I need to use this in my artwork. Mm-hmm. And so I just dumped everything I did. And I was in the middle of preparing for my BFA exhibition, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I put my BFA exhibition together in six weeks and did a whole new series of drawings that were wow. sort of free free drawing and then I'd stop and then I'd pull images out and then I'd use these pieces of collage here and there too. And um, it was so powerful. It disturbed people. (laughs) And I thought, wow, you know, and then I felt the power of being able to tell at least part of my story in a clear fashion. And it, it was amazing to just get that out there, you Mm -hmm. know, and my family didn't like it because mm-hmm. they realized that some of the stuff was about them. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened with my MFA show, only even more so. I actually got real influenced by the Northern Renaissance, the weird Renaissance, not the Italian one, the one with all the symbolism, the Flemish artists, the German artists. Um, things kind of skewed, you know, they didn't really understand perspective. I liked that part. It was sort of dreamlike and kind of scary, but the symbolism got to me. And I did a an, like 34 artworks about my family again, but they were metaphorical portraits of them using images and objects. And I did a series of each of my siblings and I have many as a saint. Um, and when they came to the show and that was even more, um, narrative about my childhood than my BFA show. Um, some of them quit talking to me and mm-hmm. they still don't because I was telling family secrets. Mm-hmm. And so all that taught me, you know, the power of um, expressing myself in this way, um, making my work public in, in such a way that I got to tell a story that I wasn't allowed to tell any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, and I've never really left off that my work has transformed um, it's always been um, a lot of mixed media because I also like the idea of fragmentation and taking all these little disparate elements and making them work together. And it also reminds me of my fragmented memory of that time period and um, trying to piece together, you know, those things that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, my work really hasn't deviated much. Um, it has a kind of a feminist spin to it, or it has in the past. Um, I don't really care what people say, and I think it's especially apparent now because of what's been in the media about the treatment of women by powerful men. Um, but women are still fighting to for equality; they just are. 
And it, it, it appalls me that it's still happening because I have daughters and granddaughters yeah. and I, I can't believe that they're going to have to still keep fighting as hard as I thought. Yeah. Um, so I really, I did a lot of um, artwork about women's work, like how it um, was illustrated in the media, especially during the time period of my grandmothers, like the thirties and the forties. And then my mother, the fifties uh-huh. and the sixties um, just to, to kind of play around with all these mixed messages that people, that women get from the media. Uh-huh. I also had some um, experience, not per- well personally, because it was loved ones with anorexia and bulimia mm-hmm. and saw, um, you know, really got into for a while what the media messages do to women. Mm-hmm. So I got into that for a while. Um, but most recently, um, the artwork that I'm doing is really about being bereaved, you know, mm-hmm. um, I it back right after graduate school did a whole series of sacred hearts. That's what I called them. I grew up Catholic, um, loved holy cards, loved the symbolism. Um, I don't know what those are. When I was a little girl in Catholic school, you would get these little holy cards as rewards for, you know, a spelling bee or something like that. And they always had a saint on them or they had a, a sacred heart image of the important figures in the church, meaning like Jesus, Virgin Mary. Um, so they were all these religious figures. And then on the back, there would often be a prayer of some kind. And so we got them as like prizes. If you went to funerals and wakes, they usually distributed those at, at those kinds of ceremonies. And there would be a prayer on the back or maybe the dates um, of, of birth and death of the people that, that lived, but they were small little things and they were, you, they were coveted, you know, and people loved them. Um, but the symbolism that's involved in sacred hearts just fascinated me as a kid, you know, the crown of thorns, the wound in the heart, the, you know, the spear, the, the, the beams of light coming out, the dove. I mean, all that Catholic stuff, if you've ever talked to a lapsed Catholic, there are certain things about the ceremony and the, um, the repetition that takes place in the mass. I, I, I don't know a single lapsed Catholic that can't still go into church and say all the prayers by heart because that's how ingrained they are in your brain. Mm-hmm. And so is the imagery, you know? And when I was in um, college, of course, what you ultimately learn is a lot of that artwork of a religious nature, which is the way major artworks began, was came out of religion because that those were the sponsors. But you know the the bishops and the popes and all that stuff. Um, but the artworks, a lot of the early religious artworks, were narrative in nature because people didn't read. So people would so all that symbolism became a tool for communication. Mm-hmm. And so and that's one of the things that fascinated me about all that. Mm-hmm. But the Sacred Hearts, of course. Um, what, what made me revisit them is Owen had a, a heart tattoo on his chest, and it was a sacred heart. If you look into the history of those images, there's a lot of them with flames. They look like vessels, like an actual vessel with, a, with an opening, and flames come out. There's also, oh my goodness, all kinds of symbolism related, related to him. There's doves, there's beams of light, there's arrows. Um, there's a lot of them that have a wound and um, um, a crown of thorns, you know, all this stuff, all this rich history. So I, um, after Owen died, actually, as he was staying with me in Berea and I knew that something was not going right and, and something bad was about to happen, I started a Sacred Heart series. And they're very small, but they're based on old um, Renaissance and pre-Renaissance engravings of various kinds of sacred hearts. And I'm still working on some of those um, because I just find the symbolism fascinating. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have um, eyes on them and I've been redrawing Owen's eyes, you know, so I really feel like I'm using it as part of my own bereavement mm-hmm. and grief process. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of where that comes from. And um there's also a history of different kinds of hearts and tattoos, you know, just various kinds of tattoos. Mm-hmm. And I did not have tattoos until after Owen died. Now I know a lot about why people get them. So what are yours about for you? Well, um, I had to, um, my very first tattoo is just a, an ornate old English O for Owen mm-hmm. that I got um, when I was in Colorado for a conference when I was a Vista leader. And my it was a time of... 
it was a very difficult time. I did not want to go to the conference. I was going through a lot of what um, suicide and other people who are grieving terribly go through, where you have a lot of kind of weird, strange, incoherent thoughts like, I can't go to Colorado because I can't leave Owen. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, well, Owen's not here. And you know Mm -hmm. that he's always with you. So, but you just get these feelings. And so it's really difficult for me to go to Colorado. And my birthday kind of fell in that time period. And I just knew at some point that I, to survive, I was going to have to get a tattoo. So I got the O. And then over the course of last fall and into last spring, when I was having hard times dealing with grief, I would get more tattoos. And there are some amazing tattoo artists in Eastern Kentucky. I mean, like, I got to give John Haywood a plug from, from Whitesburg. Whitesburg is a wonderful little mini version of Berea in uh, uh, southeastern Kentucky. And he has a shop called The Parlor Room. And um, he was referred to me by a Vista who works at one of the settlement schools out there in eastern Kentucky. And I came in with um, these symbols that I found on the internet that are um, actually people mistake them for musical symbols, which Mm -hmm. is fine with me because Owen was a musician as well. But this is to symbolize courage and this is to symbolize um, uh, unconditional love. Ah. Yeah. And I have another one that's an alpha omega. I like the idea of the beginning and the end merging. And it was a favorite symbol of Owen's. And then I finally got one that I drew and it's actually a sacred heart. And it's the sacred heart that appears on the Artvention t-shirt. But I also have it on my upper arm now too. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the images that I have been wor- that I was working on uh-huh. at the time of Owen's death. So um, a lot of people don't understand. You you see heavily tattooed people among the poor, and people know that tattoos are expensive, and they should be because they're art forms. Yeah. And I know that there are judgmental individuals out there who go, wow. You know, why do homeless people have so many tattoos? Well, there's something about getting a tattoo that's healing. There's something about um, the fact that it is painful, but it's pain with a purpose. And Mm -hmm. one of those purposes is beauty. And one of them is commemoration and memory. Um, And those are very important things. And I can't tell you how many times... I look at these tattoos on my arms and they ground me uh-huh. and I didn't realize that that's what tattoos did, uh-huh. you know? So, and Owen had quite a few tattoos too. So it, it part of it is just, you know, his influence uh-huh. for whatever it's worth. Uh-huh. But, um, I love my tattoos. <laughs> I do. I'm really grateful to have them. And I understand a lot more about why people do it. Uh-huh. And well, I love that you have these two. The the you said one was courage, courage, mm-hmm. and one was unconditional love. Mm-hmm. Where you see them, right? They are there. They are there. You can right. not really escape them unless you're keeping your mm-hmm. sleeves covered because you, for whatever reason, it's too cold, of course. But right. You know, but <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of times people's tattoos are not mm-hmm. so easy for them to see. Right. Yeah. And and my children. Well, one of them was kind of like ma can't believe you're getting tattoos yeah and i think she was thinking i needed to get something tasteful on the inside of my arms uh-huh. so no one will see it and uh-huh. i'm like that's not the point uh-huh. i really want people to see them uh-huh. and that's what i like about the o on the back of my neck i can't see it but other people can because your hair is short yes it, and yeah. yeah and i would always have my back so perfect yeah 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 that's perfect that's yeah. a beautiful story when you were talking, I have to say, because you say things, I'm not wanting to interrupt too much, mm-hmm. but when you were talking about your work that was about your family, mm-hmm. what was coming to my mind, and I pulled it up to make sure I get it right, is a quote from Anne Lamott. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you've ever heard this one, but she said, you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have not heard that. I need to put that in front of my I'll face. Send that to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have to keep reminding my family now and then, the ones that'll talk to me. I'm like, you know, people have written memoirs. I mean, there are millions of memoirs. Obviously, it's done. You know. So what are you so upset about? And yeah. it, it, maybe you need to ask yourself what you're so upset about. You know, in terms of me writing this memoir. Yeah. 
and the fun, the funny thing is, and just to give you a little backstory, one of the things that helped me when I quit traditional teaching and was trying to kind of find my niche was starting a writing project that was a memoir. And I've been a journalist, like journaling person, mm-hmm. since the early 1980s. I mean, I've kept journals, and, and those things have saved my life, you know, mostly to ground me and make me remind me <laughs> that I'm not crazy, that these things did happen, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, uh, journaling has always been a big part of my life. But um, suddenly I, I wanted to start writing about some things for public consumption. And it was a big surprise that I wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. And I started writing about the connections between what I endured in higher education and what I endured and had such a tough time overcoming when I was a child. And, um, and so of course it became the story of my family, which of course had to include my children and my brothers and my sisters and my parents and so forth. Um, and everything was fine as long as it didn't get published. But then I started sending excerpts out and got a few published in some lit journals and a couple of them were online, so they were easily accessible. And then the trouble started because it became, you know, public. But mm-hmm. um, I insisted that this is an important story, and not just for me, but I think for other people to understand that there are there are ways to overcome these yes, things that happen absolutely. to you. And and so I think the story needs to be told. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've since been taking that story and weaving Owen's story into it. And I'm a, I'm a little more than halfway through it. Um, so I'm writing that daily, well, almost daily, as well as keeping journals. And that story is called The Art Bag Lady. And I've <laughs> been calling myself that because it is a real hard thing to devote 20 years to a vocation. And then at a ripe old age, realize you need to be doing something else. And it's like, well, what if this doesn't work out? Uh-huh. There's the real you know, possibility that you could end up homeless, you know, yeah. that and carrying around huge bags of art supplies <laughs> to all these places that I go to. So, yeah. So anyway, I'm the art bag lady. And I'm still working on, on getting that, that book together, but it's, it's going really well. And, and I think Owen's story needs to be told too. Uh-huh. I mean, I know about his childhood, um, you know, and I know, enough about what he endured as an adult. And now I know enough about what real serious mental illness is like Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And the struggles that people go through, you know, even the medicating, you know, is a struggle because huge. huge. Yeah. 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 Um, And then what, and the quality of life issues that arise when you have serious mental illnesses that are often untreated or, treated through self-medication, you know, understanding too why people go in that direction Absolutely. because of the issues with the medication. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think that that's an important story too, because so many people suffer, you mm-hmm. know, from that and there's, and there's really no cure. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not something people ask for and it's not something that happens to them because of things that they do to themselves. You know, right. it, it's, it's genetic, you know? Yeah. Um, and I honestly did not know, you know, I got to see up close and personal mm-hmm. what a tragedy that is mm-hmm. and how, what a trial that is and how these people suffer, mm-hmm. you know, and they're good people, mm-hmm. really good people who try very hard mm-hmm. to live a normal life under very abnormal circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an important story you know, mm-hmm. to be told too, mm-hmm. as well as how easy it is to become homeless, mm-hmm. you know, and what that's like you know, for people. Yeah. And so I also want you to tell us about Artvention. Okay. Um, I, as usual, when I'm suffering (laughs) and trying to solve life problems, I try to go off in an art direction. And I was so lucky to meet Melinda Moore, who knew, you know, right away had, um, a really amazing sensitivity about the power of art to help people, even though she's not an artist herself. And so I'm participating in this bereavement group and she, um, in in that department of psychology at EKU had received this grant um, and to do all kinds of innovative things in terms of suicide prevention and awareness. And she had a, a student at the time who needed to come up with a senior project. And that student, was the one who 
came up with the original idea for our invention. The problem was she was not an artist. And so they needed an artist with experience working with diverse populations to come in and kind of help them solidify this. And mm -hmm. so I have to give credit to um, Abby. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember her last name. Young woman named Abby. Um, who was a student of Melinda Moore's at the time at, at Eastern Kentucky University for originally coming up with the idea. And then, of course, Melinda put it all together because I talked a lot in group about my work with um, underserved by art audiences. And then, of course, my, the personal connection in terms of how people get through this incredible mm -hmm. earth-shaking thing that happens to them. Mm -hmm. So we um, spent some months talking about the best way to do this with a group of people, most of whom don't do art. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of them are afraid of art. You know, they think they have to have these magical, amazing talents that they attribute to artists in order to. And a lot of my mission in working with underserved audiences, underserved by art audiences is, hey, how do we do this in a way that isn't gonna scare people off and is really gonna engage them? And help them be brave and come up with something. So, over these months of the, the the early part of 2017, we came up with three different activities because we had we were planning it for several hours, and we wanted it to coincide with um, September and um, because, suicide awareness and, yeah. and the, and the in, International Day. I guess comes up. World Suicide actually. Prevention Day is always September 10th, right? And so, in the United States, the week that includes that becomes National Suicide Prevention mm -hmm. Week, and then a lot of Places dedicate the whole month of September right. to extra suicide prevention yep. activities. Yep. Yeah. So EKU has this amazing um, creative space for um, for students and academics and um, and anybody doing research who's connected with the university called the Noel Studio, and they have a wonderful space there. I mean, there's art already hanging everywhere, uh -huh. and so we got a space and we picked a day. It was September 13th, and. Um, uh, Basically, we, we got the word out and invited not just students and faculty, but we invited the general public to come in. And then I came up with three different projects for us to work on. One was a, a banner and, that had to do with handprints. And I know that's something lots of people do now. You see it in schools all the time. But the idea here is that we would start with nothing, like a big blank piece of canvas. And people would use um, what's called matte medium, but it's really kind of a glue. It's an acrylic. Um, substance that dries transparent and actually make these handprints with that on the banner so it would dry and they would disappear but then as the event went on and we had some other activities that would dry so it would still look blank and then participants would come up and we would use um acrylic paint to bring the handprints back mm -hmm. so the whole thing became this process of how things disappear and reappear in other forms in our lives. Um, and I just got goosebumps when I came up with this because it was just such a cool idea. Yeah. Um, we also had um, a donation of all these um, fabric samples um, with holes already in them for stringing, like a string. So they were like little flags. And we had people sit and make dedication flags for the person that they lost oh, wow. out of various pieces of fabric and fabric markers and Sharpies. And then we displayed those as they were made. And then we also had um, a collage project and the collage was set up very carefully in that we, a group of volunteers and I got together and I talked to them about gathering certain kinds of images together. And I'm like, this has to be real. We can't make this sunshiny and wonderful because it isn't mm -hmm. so when we're looking for words for people to use we have got to include hard words too words like death words like um like um betrayal words like because we have all these feelings about the person who has left us and that really was so cool the only thing that i regretted was not having enough time to talk to everybody about the collage that they made um, one young woman, um, I did talk to her. She had this little piece of copper, coppery colored, shiny paper that she put in the middle, like a long, skinny strip. And the theme we were dealing with was before suicide and after suicide. So I asked her, what was that strip all about? Because it's a major division and it really catches your eye. Mm -hmm. And she bared her arm and showed me this long scar 
I'll never forget it, all the way up her arm uh, from where she attempted suicide. And she said it represents that. And I was just dumbfounded that she trusted me enough to share yeah. me that. Yeah. As you say that, I have to say, I've, I've seen this thing that really strikes me and and I just want to throw it out there mm -hmm. as a concept in case it strikes something with you. So I understand about scars mm -hmm. and I, and I'm familiar, unfortunately with people having very long, deep uh, mm -hmm. cuts, you know, that length of your arm as opposed to just across your wrist. Right. Um, I've met somebody who has a tattoo that I looked at and it's, and it goes basically the length of her form on the inside and it has lines and there's a blank space between the lines above the, the pattern lines above the pattern line below and so when i looked at it mm -hmm. what i thought it was was a tattoo related to a scar mm -hmm. and what it is is a whole different kind of a scar in that mm -hmm. it is a tattoo of the heartbeat oh. of a child who died Oh yeah! Wow, that's and powerful. and so that that kind of life in terms of a tattoo of a heartbeat, mm -hmm. as well as that death, you know, mm -hmm. kind of in one image. I just I just had to throw that out. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what the co the collages did. I thought was so amazing is is that people were addressing both before and after, mm -hmm. you know, and it and these things even grief transforms. I mean, it doesn't always go away, but it transforms. And eventually you get through all that horrible, really dreadfully difficult, painful part and get to this point where, and I don't like to use pat words, but a part of it is acceptance, I suppose. And part of it is getting you know through the grief and the anger back to the love that you had for this person that you lost. Because that's what the grief is. It's love. Right, exactly. And so it, it puts those things together. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that happened at our convention is that we were expecting about 20 people and we got 50. And we did not, we had no idea. The other thing that happened is that um, there was a celebratory feeling and that doesn't mean that there weren't tears and that mm -hmm. we didn't have to have a couple of interventions with therapists and people who were very upset and crying. Mm -hmm. But it was celebratory and mm -hmm. everyone who was there agreed. And I thought long and hard about why does this feel celebratory? And I think the primary thing is that suicide bereaved and suicide survivors feel so isolated just trying to get people to be to listen to the person's name yeah. or say that yes. person's name to you is so hard and to have all of us experiencing that isolation in the same room was part of that celebration mm -hmm. the idea that we are not alone right. at all right. and what that's what it was about right and there's a photograph of me that melinda took at one point she said julie let me take a picture of you and then she says, come on, stand like an artist. And then I, <laughs> and she knows how I feel about that pretentious artist, right? But then I thought. Did you put on your beret? <laughs> no. Yeah, I know what you mean. But what I thought of immediately was Owen, of course, he was a wonderful artist too. Uh -huh. And I have a photograph of him in a gallery where we had a studio space for a short period of time back in southwestern Indiana. And he was standing with his hands tucked under his armpits and his feet apart, just like artists do. Uh -huh. And so I started laughing and Melinda's like, what? And I'm like, I need to stand like Owen. So I did this and she took a picture uh -huh. and it is without a doubt the best picture of me in uh -huh. years because I was thinking about him uh -huh. the whole time. Well, beautiful. Yeah. And it shows my tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> all the goodness. All the good stuff. Yeah. So we are at the end of the hour. Wow, that <laughs> And so if people want to find out more about you mm -hmm. so they can connect and be inspired and maybe do some things related to the kinds of things you're doing mm -hmm. other places, what's the best way for them to find out about you? Well, the best way is probably my website. I, I'm, I, I go by Warrior Woman. And so it's Warrior Woman um, Productions. 
com, and there's a, a little hyphen between Warrior Woman and Productions. Okay. So Warrior Woman is all one word, and then the hyphen and Productions.com. Um, there's, um, I post things all the time about what I'm doing. So there's slideshows of photographs of the work that I do with youth, um, primarily with youth these days. And, um, also, um, uh, a page with my artwork, there's a resume, there's, um, a bit of a history about how I got into my writing project. And so that would be the place to go to find out more about me. Well, thank you so much for doing this talk with me. This is beautiful. Thanks. I'm so happy to have been able to do this. It really feels good. That's wonderful. And shout out to our mutual friend, Melinda Moore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Melinda. And many thanks to Daniel Smith, who produces the show. So people get to listen. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so long to our listeners.